Christchurch, New Malden, Sunday the 30th of April 2023, 11 o'clock service. Tim Davis speaking on the resurrection in John. Uh, the resurrection in John's Gospel, the last talk in our mini-series, uh, looking at the different resurrection accounts in the Gospels. Um, I think it's been interesting you know, to see the differences in the accounts, what the writers focus on and why. We see the different perspectives on the resurrection of Jesus, who, who he appeared to, where he appeared and when. Um, but what I've actually found really interesting, particularly in preparing for this talk, um, is what I think truly sets the Gospels apart from one another. And that's the real kind of style in which the uh, resurrection accounts are written. Uh, for example, Matthew's Gospel. So I like a big blockbuster movie, perhaps something written by, uh, produced by Michael Bay. You know, there's earthquakes, angels in dazzling white like lightning, soldiers collapsing and fainting, stones rolled away. And at the end of it is this great climatic uh, closing scene where Jesus gives this rousing speech where he tells the disciples to go Go and be my disciples in the world. Go and do what I've been doing. You can hear the music stirring, the strings coming in. It's getting more and more powerful. You used to think we were just one man, but now you're a whole army. Go! As the like, symbols, I think I'm crashing in, the credits roll. Uh, well, at least that's why I kind of imagine it. Maybe getting a bit carried away. But, you know. uh, Mark's gospel, on the other hand, um, I find Mark's gospel as a whole, it's more like a kind of a, a soap opera. If you've ever watched EastEnders, the amount of things that just happen, snappy, 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 quick. You know, if you looked at the entire event over the course of a year in uh, one typical year of EastEnders, that's more than most people get in many lifetimes, let alone like 50 episodes. Um, and yet, I kind of thought of that when I was reading Mark's accounts of the resurrection. It's like it's left on a like, typical cliffhanger that you'd get at the end of a soap opera episode or a TV miniseries before you get into season two. Just enough to kind of engage you and think, oh yeah, I'm coming back for more. Uh, and in this, it, you know, it's despite Mark's gospel being incredibly similar in content to Matthew's, the one real feature is that Jesus doesn't feature in Mark's account of the resurrection at all. It's like we're left with this kind of mystery, this real cliffhanger at the end. The women, it's described, go to Jesus' tomb, but they find it empty. Where is Jesus? What happened? No, he's dead. His body should be in the tomb. It's gone. I did not see this plot twist coming. The women are then told that Jesus has gone on ahead of you to Galilee. Go there and you will find him. Galilee. We now have to go to Galilee. Unfortunately, Matthew, Mark's gospel isn't quite like EastEnders. It's actually like one of those more unsuccessful TV miniseries that never gets commissioned after the first series. So you're just left with this unresolved kind of cliffhanger at the end of season one. What did happen to Jesus? Don't know, if you just read Mark's gospel. Fortunately, Luke decided it was quite important to let his readership know what exactly happened to Jesus. In Jesus' encounters with his disciples and others, he's recorded as explaining in detail, in depth, exactly why he had to die, how it was God's plan all along. This great explanation, this denouement, 
to Luke's gospel, I, I found it kind of reminiscent of watching an episode of Murder, she wrote. You know, despite all these possible clues that you'd get in the episode, it wasn't until Jessica Fletcher had gathered everyone together and um, explained exactly what had happened in the episode and how the killer had planned and almost got away with committing murder. And it wasn't until that happened that you finally understood all that had taken place. And that's something Luke is like, making sure the reader kind of sees, ah, I get it. John's gospel is radically different, I feel. It doesn't go for this sudden exciting narrative or cliffhanger or detailed explanation as to what happens. No, for me, John's gospel is more like a gorgeously written novel. It's so descriptive in retelling the events of the resurrection. But above all, it just shows such humanity. And by that, I mean the gospel as a whole features people displaying such earthly characteristics of what it means to be human. Emotion, stress, fear, disbelief, joy, wonder. You know, if there's a gospel which was made for you to read and really understand what's taking place, feel yourself part of the story, to immerse yourself in, identify with these different human traits and emotions, then John's gospel is the one. And I think it's really in this rich, vivid narrative that we learn more about the resurrection of Jesus and the compelling evidence for it. And so that's what we're thinking about today. In the first section of chapter 20 that we heard read to us, we have this account of Peter and one of the other disciples being told that Jesus' body had vanished from the tomb. And so they're described as running to it. No, it's not just going. They're running to it to see it for themselves. In fact, John really gets into the descriptive narrative. He describes the other disciple as outrunning Peter. So desperate is he to see what has happened to his friend his teacher, his Lord's body. Now, why does John feel the need for this kind of added description, describing this almost race to get to the tomb? I think he really wants the reader to understand just how crazy it must have been for the disciples at that time. They had lost their friend, Jesus. They were scared, it says, and hiding. They didn't know why the events of the past few days had happened as they did. It didn't make sense. And now, here they were with this mixture of confusion, shock. You know, what's happened to Jesus' body? Hope, perhaps, maybe something better has happened. But probably just concern and worry as much as anything. But also, the other disciple is described as the one Jesus loved and this is commonly believed to be John, the author of the gospel. And so I think he really wants the reader to just know, to understand that everything he's written has come from first-hand eyewitness or from speaking with people who were first-hand eyewitnesses. And so for John, there can't be any dispute over the authenticity of the events he's writing about. He even says that he and Peter didn't realize what had happened to Jesus because they didn't yet 
understand the Old Testament prophecies that Jesus had talked about that said that Jesus had to die and rise from the dead. They didn't understand it was all about Jesus and happening at that moment. And so they couldn't possibly have maybe done something like stolen Jesus' body and put out a story that in fact he'd risen from the dead. Because that's what several years later many people tried to say had happened, to discredit the believers. No, at that time, John and Peter still assumed Jesus was dead. At that time, they had no idea that that was what in fact had happened, that Jesus had risen from the dead. So John is saying that you know, Jesus, much to their bewilderment, as far as they were concerned, was simply gone from the tomb. But we then move into this deeply moving encounter between Mary Magdalene and Jesus. Mary is described as being outside the tomb, crying, weeping. She's mourning the loss of her beloved Lord. And now it seems that she's discovered this final humiliating indignity. Not only was Jesus dead, but his body was now gone, maybe even taken by grave robbers or someone. John shares with us her sense of despair, of hopelessness, of utter sorrow and pain. And we can sympathize, we can empathize with her and therefore set ourselves up to share in the transformation of her sorrow into joy. Maybe because she's looking through tear weeping eyes or because it's still early and the light isn't good, but she doesn't realize that it's Jesus standing beside her. Again, she also doesn't understand these Old Testament prophecies and how they were about Jesus and unfolding right there and then. So she's certainly not expecting that Jesus is actually alive. But in this deeply moving, personal moment, which John describes so beautifully, she suddenly realizes who this person beside her really is. And just a word each is spoken. Mary. Teacher. We can imagine her throwing herself at Jesus' feet, holding on to him, feeling him, to know he's really there, he's really alive. Don't hold on to me, he even has to say. <clears throat> Here again is what I think is compelling evidence for the validity of the events in John's Gospel. Mary Magdalene is recorded as the first person to see and hear and touch Jesus, the risen Lord. And yet as a woman, her testimony would have been easily disregarded. Had there been some inquiry into Jesus' disappearance, she would not have had her testimony believed in court. In fact, people reading John's Gospel might have said, this doesn't sound right, this woman doing it. John could have easily changed the narrative himself and said, now I was the first person to see Jesus. But that's not the purpose of John's Gospel. He wants everything to be recorded as accurately, as truthfully as possible. Details matter to John. It's why the behavior, the earthly emotions of the people he's writing about are important to him. Because I think he wants the reader to be able to visualize these situations for themselves. 
to really be able to see through the words what happened, to identify with the range of emotions that the people we're reading about were going through. And so ourselves feel in no doubt that what we're reading did actually take place. After that meeting between Mary and Jesus, there followed two accounts of Jesus appearing to his disciples. In the first one, we get the level of details that we've often come to expect from John. The disciples are described as living in fear, and yet they're being overjoyed to see their Savior alive again. And in the space of just a few short words, John then conveys Jesus' instructions, not just to the disciples, but I feel to all of us. They, we, are to go out into the world, spreading the good news that Jesus is alive. They, we, will not be alone in this, but equipped with the Holy Spirit, and we are to forgive people their sins, just as God forgives us. Wonderful, awesome stuff. Slight problem is that not everyone is there to hear it. Thomas, as we hear, was missing. And John's description of Thomas's disbelief, I feel, challenges us to consider how might we have reacted when someone tells us that the seemingly impossible has actually happened. Thomas, for me, is a wonderfully analytical, pragmatic disciple of Jesus. He's witnessed some incredible events during his time as a follower of Jesus. And yet, the idea of Jesus dying and being raised to life, Jesus, whom he'd seen crucified, seems impossible to him. I can just imagine him saying, look, I'm sure you guys believe that Jesus, who we saw nailed to a cross, killed and then buried in a tomb, is alive. But I can't believe that. I need to see it for myself and to touch his wounds so I know it's really him, not a different person. And to hear him talking to me, feel his breath on my face so I know he's really alive. Only then can I believe what feels impossible. Would we have responded in a similar way? But all of a sudden Jesus is there inviting Thomas to test whether it really is Jesus or not. And I have to say it's at this stage when I don't actually find John is at his most effective in trying to get the reader to feel a part of the drama unfolding. Because, yeah, call me picky, squeamish, but if someone says to me, here, Tim, touch my wounds, put your hand in them, I'm going to go, nah, I'm good, I'm fine, I believe you, it's okay, I don't need to go that far. But no, it's this very incident, however, that I think is directly addressed to you and I. Because you have seen me, Jesus says to Thomas, you have believed, but blessed are those who have not seen and not yet believed. I don't think this is the rebuke to Thomas that we perhaps think it might be. Instead, I think it's John addressing the reader with Jesus' words, asking us to affirm whether we believe what it is we're reading, what we're hearing. You know, we don't have the benefit of first-person witnesses that Thomas had. We only have what we read, 
what we hear to enable us to believe that Jesus Christ really did die and rise to new life again. And yet, as Jesus says, if we do believe, we are blessed for doing so. And that, I feel, is the entire purpose, not just of this resurrection account, but of the whole of John's Gospel. That we might believe. John's Gospel is rich and vivid in its literary style and content. It's the sort of book that requires, at the very least, a second reading as new insights come to light with each subsequent reading. There is far greater depth and perspective to the picture of Jesus in it, and also all the other persons who feature in his gospel that you might get from Matthew or Mark or Luke's gospel, commonly known as the Synoptic Gospels. And fundamental to the message of John's gospel is that the revelation that Jesus is the Son of God, that he lived on earth as a man, that he was crucified and died, and yet it was through his sacrificial death that we can all receive salvation and then share in his triumph of resurrection to new life with the promise of God's Holy Spirit to remain with us. That is the message of John's Gospel. Now, despite the end of chapter 20 seeming like you know, the perfect conclusion to John's Gospel, um, John's literary masterpiece actually finishes with an epilogue, chapter 21. Now, in the interest of time, we didn't have that read to us as well. Um, but an epilogue is generally a literary or film device to show final concluding events, often taking place in the future, long after the main events of the story have occurred. To give an example, um, I always have a particular fondness for the epilogue in the final Harry Potter film. Uh, it takes place several years in the future, after the main events of the final film, and it brings this really lovely, nice closure to everything. We see that despite all the troubles and difficulties that our main protagonists endured in the film, we see that in the future everything has all worked out okay. They're all happy, grown up, married, fine. And it shows just how dominant the ginger gene really is. Um, but the epilogue in John's Gospel continues the author's account of post-resurrection appearances. But it also serves, I think, as a key example of God's relationship to us as individuals and our mission as people of God. Two key things happen in the final chapter. Firstly, Jesus aids his disciples in a miraculous catch of fish. And secondly, Peter, who had denied Jesus three times on the night Jesus was arrested, is reinstated. Peter's reinstatement is important because it affirms that God still loves us and values us even when we mess up. He forgives us when we do wrong, and he wants us to still serve him in our daily lives. So never feel that you are not worthy of God's love or not good enough for his service. You are. At first, I think the miraculous catch of fish could just appear to be another of Jesus' miracles, 
no less, no more great than many of the others. But where it comes at this final moment in John's Gospel, I think serves as a key indicator of the task ahead of the disciples and how they will accomplish it. And as such, I think it's one that we also need to pay heed to. The disciples are described as not having much success on a fishing trip until this person on the shore, who they don't recognize as Jesus at the time, shouts out, throw your net over the other side of the boat. And in doing so, they catch a huge haul of fish. The disciples were unable to do this on their own. They needed Jesus' power to achieve this. And soon they would be going out as fishers of men, trying to bring others to faith in God. And this role would, this role would also have Jesus' strength and authority behind it, by the power of the Holy Spirit, as it still does today when Jesus calls us, not just to follow him, but to bring others to him also. Why must we do this? Well, because we know the resurrection of Jesus to be true. And if we know it to be true, then we must also know that the power of God to raise Jesus from the dead is the same power that has defeated the burden and punishment of sin and is the same power that he has given to us by his Holy Spirit to enable us to live our lives for him. Let's get busy doing that.